morning. Cool. It's, I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor. And not blank by the time we're done. We are going to talk about things today that are deep. They go into lots of things. I'm going to throw lots of Bible verses your direction in hopes that you can come to a better understanding of the presence of God in your life. Uh, we're in a series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And this iceberg image, I talk about it every week because it's so powerfully illustrative of our lives. 90% of the mass of an iceberg is below the surface of the water. And the same is true for us. Um, there are significant things below the surface of our lives that shape who we are. They shape what we do. They shape how we react. And reactions are key, sort of to the windows of your emotional health. Um, our reactions to circumstances, our reactions to people are a confusing and complex mix of factors. The reasons why we do what we do, the reasons why we react the way that we react um, is based on lots of factors. And we're in this series, we're looking at these factors. And so far, in pursuing emotionally healthy spirituality, we've looked at our intellect, our emotions, and our family of origin. And we talked about how these are like knights of the round table. Right, that when you make decisions in life, there's you, there's your intellect, there's your emotions, and your family of origin. All these elements are at the table, these elements of who you are, and they all affect and influence you. Each one has value. The round table where everyone who's sitting there is equal. So each, each has value and each needs to be heard in order for you to experience God in your life. Okay, emotional health and spiritual maturity go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. So many of us, so many of us are stunted in our spiritual growth because we're not in tune with our emotions. This is the quote from the author of the book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He says, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. When we aren't honest about the factors, about the things with the knights of the round table, when we don't give them their fair share, fair share, their opportunity to speak into the mix of who we are, if we shut one down, if we treat one like a slave that has no basis for speaking up, we end up feeling far from God. Okay, why? Well, it's because when things happen to us in life, we make judgments, we make conclusions about ourselves, about others, and about God. And so there's another night that we need to be aware of. There's another night around the table, and it's commitments. The night of commitments, K-N-I-G-H-T, not the night of commitment. Cope, that's not you made a commitment. No, 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 it's the night of commitments. These are the commitments that we make to cope with our suffering. And we're going to talk about commitments today and the commitments that we have made. Some of these commitments you know you made. Some of these commitments you don't know that you made them. And they're having this powerful influence on your life. And we're hopefully going to bring them into the light today. We're going to invite them to the round table and we're going to listen and hear from them. And let me give you an illustration of what this means. And this illustration comes from a fantastic book. I found this book long before I found Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's called A Guide for Listening and Inner Healing Prayer, which I think for some of you that 
you know, don't like psychology, that this, this book title might sound kind of freaky. Like, just give me the Bible. Like, let me just read the Bible and pray about the Bible. But this is the guide for listening and inner healing prayer. It's called Meeting God in the Broken Places. I love the Bible, and this is the most biblical expression of, of how to pray through things that have happened to you that I've ever read, and I highly recommend it. The author's name is Rusty Rustenbach, which I just think is weird. <laughs> it's a weird name. Um, but uh, this book is fabulous. It's been transformative in my own life. It's, uh, you read it, but it's also a workbook. You can kind of work your way through it. Highly recommended. And I want to give you a story that he tells in this book. It's a story about a gal named Sophie or Sophia. He said this, Sophia's life was deeply affected by passive abuse. So not active abuse, but passive abuse. Um, she said this, there's no specific memory, she said, during our time of prayer together. Instead, it's a pattern of my dad never being at home and rarely coming to my soccer games. It's like he was never there. I could sense incredible sadness in her voice as we sat together in her pain. After a few minutes, I inquired, Lord Jesus, what did Sophia believe in the midst of her dad's absence? That's that question that we tried to start asking last week. What did Sophia believe in the midst of her dad's absence? It took a while before she responded. Suddenly, Sophia was overcome by emotion. There must be something wrong with me. If I were more like my older sister, then my dad would have spent time with me, she blurted through her tears. As an adult, listen to this, as an adult, this wound showed up as an enormous struggle in the area of people-pleasing. So because of this wound from the past, because her dad, she didn't feel appreciated or honored or loved by her dad, she ended up spending the rest of her adult life as a people pleaser. And so Sophia's life was miserable and a struggle because unbeknownst to her, she didn't know this was going on, she had made a commitment to make everyone around her happy to avoid feeling the way she felt growing up. Okay, she had made a commitment to make everyone around her happy, to avoid the feeling, to avoid feeling the way she felt growing up. And so these commitments that we make sometimes are vows or strategies, okay? And in this book, um, Rusty Rustenbach, if I can say his name again because it's fun, um, he said this. He said, an unbiblical inner vow is a strong decision oath, or declaration of what we will or will not do in order to protect ourselves from pain or further hurt or to obtain what we feel we need. These vows are usually made unconsciously in the midst of a wounding event and involve relying on ourselves for protection rather than trusting in God and his power. So Sophia's commitment as a people pleaser she was basically saying, she made a commitment. I will make everyone around me happy because I never want to feel again the way my dad made me feel. Get it? And so for her, she's saying like, I'm gonna orient my life around making everyone happy so that I don't have to feel that way. And you can imagine the kind of problems that that might end up entailing because now I need to please other people. I'm going to put their pleasure, their being pleased with me above the truth, above possibly a healthy set of my own limits, 
Like maybe I'm going to have to work extra hard because I need to make sure I'm pleasing everybody around me. Um, and so like another way that this gets expressed with other people in a different kind of, a, in a different way is people that make a commitment that says, I will never be out of control again. And then they develop a strategy of planning for every contingency, being extremely organized and being hyper-vigilant because by God, they're going to keep everything in control. I'm not saying that every person who's organized is doing this, um, but we need to pray, right? We need to look in and say, wait a second, is this maybe why I fly off the handle and get super angry? Is it because I'm trying to keep things in control and you're keeping me from keeping things in control? <laughs> right? Um, now, Rusty Rustenbach also says this about looking at the past. He says, look, this doesn't mean that we're blaming our past. This doesn't mean that we're accusing our parents for messing us up or even excusing ourselves because others have victimized us. That's not what inner healing is about. Inner healing is about opening up with God in such a way that he can reveal what happened within us and then change us from the inside out. Okay, and so, again, this isn't like psychological mumbo-jumbo, you know, some people don't like psychology, and I think that's a, a bad thing to think, although there's lots of psychology that is contrary to the Bible, there's some psychology that actually fits in and expresses biblical truth, um, but the point is that these commitments that we make, um, these commitments that we make are... Um, they end up being spiritually dangerous, okay? This isn't just looking for excuses of why you are the way you are so that everybody around you will just give you a break. That's not the point. The point is emotionally healthy spirituality. It's experiencing God in all of life. And so I'm telling you that these commitments that we tend to make become spiritually dangerous. And I want to show you why. So this is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. It says this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It's in modern culture, right? You're not supposed to go to bed angry. Um, and as with most things that the culture borrows from the Bible, they tend to cut out the spiritual significance of it and turn it into sort of just a timeless truth. Not a good idea. But this is in the Bible. And God inspired this to be written so that we would understand that there is a dangerous spiritual consequence to sinning in your anger. There's a dangerous spiritual consequence to going to bed with unresolved conflict. When you let the sun go down on your anger, you are giving an opportunity to the devil. If you let the sun go down on your, day, on, on your anger, you give the devil an opportunity. And this word opportunity, it's like a foothold. You give the devil a place to live inside your heart. What happens here is that when you sin in your anger, when you go to bed with unresolved conflict, and, and, and let me just say this, <clears throat> sometimes 
resolving the conflict doesn't look like everybody is happy and reconciled. That's ideal. If you can get to a place where your conflict is dealt with in a healthy way, where both sides feel heard and understood, and you have a sense that we're reconciled and forgiven, boy, that's amazing, right? When it's 1.30 a.m., and you just learned what's really underneath the conflict that you've been fighting about, and you think, oh my goodness, this is gonna take like at least four or five hours, this is gonna take counseling help. This is gonna, like, we need to get someone else to come in and help mediate this conflict. But it's 1.30 in the morning. Does this mean that the Bible would say that you need to stay up and do something until a counselor wakes up so that you can call them? Like, is that what that's saying? It's not. It's not. Um, this is where we got to, like, we got to be wise here. Um, sometimes resolving conflict before you go to bed looks like saying, okay, it's 1.30 in the morning. Um, it would be ideal for us if we could resolve this and be reconciled, but we're we're not going to get there. I think both of us realize that this is not going to come, this isn't going to have a happy ending in the next 30 minutes, in the next hour. It's going to take a while, right? And so can we agree, could we agree that, look, this is a bad situation that needs more attention, but we should probably go to sleep. We should probably pray (laughs) as we sleep. We should probably pray, and then let's address this and come up with a plan in the morning, okay? So resolving conflict before you go to bed could look like that, where the conflict's not resolved, but you've at least agreed that we need to make a plan. Are you with me? Right? And so, okay. So that's, that's what it looks like sometimes. But if you don't do that, if you sin in your anger, if you fly off the handle, if you say something that you really shouldn't say, if you if you stab someone in the back because you're angry, right? If you hit them below the belt because you're angry, if you choose to ignore dealing with the conflict at all and sweep it under the rug, you are giving the devil an opportunity in your life. You are, I mean, unbeknownst to yourselves, you might, you might not understand this, but you are offering the devil service. You are following the devil's ways, right? You have found the devil's will for your life, and you're following it. When this happens, you are letting him in. You are opening your heart and your life to his ways and his thinking. Um, You are acting like his servant, Let me give you another verse, 1 John 3, verse 8. It says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And so, we tend to think, and it's one of these lies that he tells us, that our sins don't matter. But they are, there are desperately real consequences. So at first, it starts with giving the devil an opportunity, like a little place in our hearts. When that continues, when we don't deal with our sin, when we continue to, um, to let him in, when we continue to follow him, we end up being people that are 
of him. It's like instead of having the name of Jesus written on our hearts, we have the name of the enemy. We have the name of the devil written over us. And again, there are spiritually dangerous consequences. And this is where it ends up. In Romans 6, verse 16, it says this. Do you not know? Normally when Paul says, do you not know, it's in Romans, he wrote Romans, I always think, no, actually I didn't know that, so thanks for telling me. Um, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin leading to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. And so, if you give the devil an opportunity, if you continue the practice of sinning, you will end up enslaved to sin. And so, the negative commitments that we make in our reactions to suffering and to pain can put us in bondage to the devil. Let me tell you a story from my own life. Um, when I was young, we didn't have the term bullying. Okay, there were bullies, but the, 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 the verb to bully was not around. But I was tormented in school. Um, Throughout my sixth and most of my seventh grade year, I was tortured on a daily basis. Um, people ridiculed me uh, for the way I dressed. People ridiculed me for the way I looked and for the way I acted. Um, and it was awful. It was awful because I remember that even the people that I considered to be my friends, I knew that when I sat down with them to have lunch, I was going to spend most of that time hearing them make fun of me hearing them pick on me, and, um, and I had lots, lots, lots to pick on. Um, in the middle of my seventh grade year, I remember coming to a set commitment. I remember making a commitment in the middle of my seventh grade year, and that commitment was, no one cares about me, so I do not care what anyone thinks. That was my conclusion, and I committed. I said, like, since no one cares about me, I have to put my needs ahead of everyone else because no one else is. And so this was a commitment that I made, and this led me into a life of self-centeredness, obviously, um, and manipulation, uh, that made me actually incredibly strong. My whole life changed. I had a, an experience of transformation that happened because I decided I didn't care what anybody thought. I decided that what I wanted was more important than anybody else, and I just chased after it and didn't care if anybody didn't like it. And so the power and the strength that came from within me, like, caused my life to improve dramatically because I didn't care what people thought. I wasn't stressed about things that they said. Um, and what's interesting is that in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, but not just then beyond, when you don't care about what people think, then more people will think that you are cool. And so there's like a social payback that comes through this process. And so when I say this led me to a life of self-centeredness and manipulation, it really worked for me. <laughs> like it worked 
really well, but I ended up in bondage. And what happened was I ended up, <laughs> and this is where the deception comes in, like um, I really liked the change in people's reactions to me. And then I began, like sort of through the back door, I began to, first I noticed because I didn't care, but I noticed that people's opinions about me changed, and then I liked that people's opinions about me changed, and then it was like, wait, I want to keep this, where they like me, and that produced in me this bondage to the opinions and the desires of other people. So I ended up a people pleaser as well, from a place of not caring. Um, and then I became a Christian. Like, so years later, I became a Christian, and I didn't understand this bondage, until much later. And so I brought this bondage to putting myself first. I brought this bondage to, um, to manipulation into my life with Jesus. And it was just there. It was just part of who I was. And I didn't realize it. It was so natural for me that it didn't sort of come out in my confession of sins. And so this is how we can be new creatures in Christ and yet still be plagued with all kinds of problems with sin and addiction, right? Because the Bible says, hey, if you're a Christian, then everything's new. You're born again, right? All this wonderful stuff. And yet it's like, well, then why am I still the way I am, right? Like I have Jesus in my heart, but remember last week, but grandpa is still in my bones. Um, and so if we have and we maintain or we create patterns of particular sins, we will live in bondage. That's what Ephesians 4, 1 John 3, 8, and Romans 6, 16 teaches. And so the statements that we are new in Christ are very true. Here's how it works. Here's how it works. God, when we believe in Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, um, we, that God gives us his spirit, right? So he gives us his power and his presence, um, it, uh, it's a gift. The life and the death of Jesus is credited to our account and God accepts us. Because when we say we believe in him, right, when we believe in him, we are making another commitment. We are committing to God. We are opening ourselves up to him and to his authority. We say that Jesus is now our Lord and our Savior and so we give him reign over our life. We give him our authority and control. And so to become a Christian is to give control of your life to God. And what that means is that you say that you believe that from now on, God is in charge. This is what it means to be a Christian. I mean, the grace is wonderful and forgiveness is wonderful, but that grace and forgiveness doesn't come without you making a commitment that God is your God. And if he is your God, he is your God. <laughs> He's in control. And so that's the commitment that you're making when you become a Christian. And this results in that you are willing to do whatever God wants you to do. And so one reason why many people who call themselves Christians don't experience God is because they really haven't committed to God. They want to be Christian they want the grace, they want the forgiveness, they want to feel okay, they want to be part of a church community. I mean, all those things are good, but in their heart of hearts, they haven't actually said, God, you're in control. 
God, whatever you want, God, whatever you say, I am going to do with as much of my heart as I possibly can. And when I fail, God, I'm committed to telling you and admitting that I've failed and I want to start over again. I want to try again. If you say that God is in charge, but basically do whatever you want, then God's not really in charge and you aren't really a Christian. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says this himself in Luke 6, verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And this isn't about, this isn't about, um, like, gritting your teeth and saying, like, all right, fine, I'm going to do this. Because John 14, 15 says this. This is Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so for Jesus, when he talks about this, and he understands the challenges here. I mean, this isn't perfect. None of us are going to be perfect at this. But Jesus says, like, do you love me? (laughs) Do you love me? I mean, obedience is about love. It's about, okay, Jesus, I want you more than I want anything else. Even dessert, (laughs) right? Lent, right? Even dessert, even coffee, even. But no, like, it's Jesus, I love you more than I love my lust, And I'm going to live that way. And I'm going to admit that I'm not perfect. But, you know, whenever I fail, I'm going to come back to you and say, Jesus, I love you more than I love this, even though I acted like I love this more than I love you. Right? This is about love. Um, And so part of experiencing God's presence is in obeying him. Right? It's your heartfelt desire to have him close to you. And so, because when you do this, when you put him first, you know, when you're in that moment and you're like, wait, hold on, I don't want to be committed to this over God. And so, God, I'm committing to you right now in this moment. I'm committing to you. When you do that, you feel his approval. You feel that he's close because you've just made a decision as though he's right there with you because he is. This idea that you're in fellowship with him, that he's close and you want him so close that you're willing to follow him. 1 John 5, 3 says this, that for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So normally when God's commandments are a burden, we've stepped out of the relationship with God piece. Like at that point, we're thinking about something else. When we are looking at God's commandments and we're like, oh gosh, I don't want to do this. At that point, we've sort of forgotten who God is. We've forgotten what God has done. And so this verse is wonderful because it's saying, wait, don't don't forget. Like, wait, God, he knows what will give you the greatest life you could possibly have. And his commandments reflect that life. And so these commands aren't a burden. These these commandments are a pathway into real meaning and significance and purpose. These commandments are are life-giving and life-promoting for you and for the people that are around you. And so what's amazing about all of this is that, uh, again, and this is not... 
This isn't about earning stuff, right? I hope you don't feel that way. This isn't about earning your salvation. This is like because God has loved you first. He loved you first. And so because of that, we're going to love him back, right? Not to earn his love, but to walk in his love. God loves us, and he brings us into this amazing relationship where he's gracious to us, and he's with us, and he gives us crazy, amazing power that's at our disposal if we'll but use it, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But then our response is, God, we love you back. When we disobey God, when we sin in our anger, when we go to bed angry, when we let the devil in, and the devil comes in anytime we follow him, we're the ones who push God out of our lives. And so this is what happens. And there are times in our lives where we make these, we make these commitments, right? This isn't true about every single sin, but like there are commitments that we make that leave us in bondage, in bondage to people pleasing, in bondage to control, in bondage to our anger because of things that have happened to us. And what's amazing about this, Jesus' appeal to us, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? Right? This is love. It's not, it, it, keep his commandments. His commandments aren't a burden. Jesus works in a way that includes our agency and our will. Okay? Jesus doesn't violate our will. Actually, Jesus makes our will come alive. But if we don't exercise our will in the areas of our lives where we're broken, we won't experience transformation. If we continue to honor the devil if we continue to, um, to offer ourselves to his bondage, we will end up in bondage. And so there's one verse that sort of brings these things together. It's actually two verses in Philippians. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, it says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so, so this call, this command is work out your salvation. Like work out your salvation, why? Because God is at work in you. And so the principle here is that you need to work out what God has worked in. This is how it works. So God gives us spiritual muscles and you have to exercise them. Okay? If you don't, you will stay spiritually dead, spiritually weak, spiritually flabby. Now, there are times when we think, Oh, man, I did not come to church to be told that I have to work out. Like, that's kind of messed up. Stephen, can't you give me grace? Can't you make me feel good that God loves me? Well, he does. Like, God totally loves you. He's working. He's done all this stuff. None of this working out is to get anything more from God. It's to experience what he's already given you. And so all of what we're talking about comes after you've been forgiven and accepted by God. Okay, this verse is written to Christians who understand and experience the grace of God. Okay, but, I mean, here's the reality, right? If you want to grow, it takes work. You can't just sit in a chair and think you're going to change. 
God wants you to work out what he is working in. And it's this work, this, this work that God is doing in you, that you are then working out. It's this working out that will set you free from the bondage of your commitments. That will set you free from the, from the sinful vows and commitments that you have made over the course of your life. Because you might think, man, wait, no, what I'm dealing with is too much. Like, this is too much. Like, I can't do this. And, and the reality is, it's not too much for you. It's not too much for you. Because you, if you're trusting in Jesus, you, brothers and sisters, are children of God. You were made in the image of God. You were crowned with glory and honor. God breathed his life into you. You have the life of God. You're made in his image, crowned with glory. When you bow the knee to Jesus, he will enable you by his grace and forgiveness. He will enable you who have bowed your knee to him. He enables you to stand up straight with your shoulders back. He enables you to face the world, to face your past, to face the commitments, and to overcome them. He hasn't just made you in his image, but he is remaking you after himself. He's remaking you after the image of Jesus. There is nothing that you don't have. God says that you are powerful enough to rule the earth. He has given humanity. He has called us to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. That means to fill the world so that it, we treat the world the way God treats the world. So that we would exercise rule and dominion and leadership. That we would empower the world. That we would plant things. That we would make things. That we would keep things running right. That we would fix stuff that's broken. God has made us to do this. And then he's given us the power of Jesus. So that in the broken places, we can bring redemption. The Bible says that we now overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. When we believe in Jesus, when we commit to him, we're not just praying a prayer. To commit to Jesus is to make a solemn declaration. It's to make a commitment about the direction of your life. To become a Christian, to commit to Jesus is to say, with everything that I have, I'm going to follow Jesus. It's to say, I believe that apart from God, I am sinful. I am broken. There's stuff about me that's good, but there's a lot about me that's messed up. I have done things that have wrecked God's world. I have done things that have wrecked myself and wrecked others. I've hurt other people, right? To become a Christian is to say, gosh, this is who I am, and God loves me. This is who I am, and yet God is offering me a way out. God is offering, me, offering to fill me with his spirit, and to become a Christian says, I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he leads, and so there's a power that comes into us when we become Christians because it's the power 
of a more powerful commitment. That whatever commitments that we have made, whatever unbiblical vows that we've made, whatever things that we have done, whatever patterns of our lives that we have created and, and established and become in bondage to that have given the devil rule over our lives, we're now saying, I'm now committed to something else. I'm now committing to Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. And so you enter into Christ. You enter into following Jesus with all of the sins of your past. And God forgives them. And then he gives you strength so that you can begin to untangle them if you're willing to work out with the spiritual muscles and, the, and exert the strength of God that's in you. And in this way, here's what's interesting, is that in this way, you bear the sins of the past. Some of the sins that have been done to you, some of the sins that you've committed, the awful experiences that you've gone through, and you lift them up. It's like you grab them from the grave, and you lift them up, and you bring them to God, and God takes them from you. He lifts the burden, and he gives you forgiveness that by Jesus' power, you lift them up to God in heaven and offer them to him, and he takes your burdens, and then he comes to bear them with you because he's already borne them on the cross. And God wants you to do this in your own life so that you can do it for others. I mean, it'd be great if God just zapped us, right, and set us free from everything in the past. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that because God wants to fill the world with men and women and children who are able to live in a way that shows that God's power is strong enough to take anything that the past has thrown at us and continue to love, to continue to worship him. It's in this way that you bear the sins of the world around you when you help other people to find God in the midst of their struggles with the past. And so, how do we walk in this, right? What are some ways that we can walk in this? Let me finish quickly by just giving you some practical, some practical stuff. During Lent, you can grab your bookmark here that's in your bulletin, um, or focus this, this Lent, what do you need to do to work out? What your workout is to pray, write, and speak, okay? Pray, write, and speak. So pray through what, I'm gonna give you four questions and you can write them on this card and carry them with you this week. Four questions that'll help you to enter into this. Um, the first question is, what happened or is happening? So go back over your life. Think about the, the significant events in your life. Some of them will be positive. Some of them will be negative. What happened or is happening to you right now uh, that is significant and you feel like is shaping the direction of your life? And then two, ask yourself this question. Has a commitment bound you? Are you currently in bondage to a commitment that you have made? And you can pray about this. Jesus, this is this thing that happened to me. Did I come to believe something, right? Did I, have I made a commitment to live in a way that's gonna keep this from happening again, right? You wanna pray through that. You wanna write about it, right? You wanna speak to someone else, a trusted friend, and walk through this process so that you're not just alone. Um, 
And then three, what does Jesus have to say? I became convinced that nobody cared about me. Boy, Jesus helped me with that. (laughs) Jesus walked me back over the past and he taught me that when no one else cared, he did. Jesus taught me that he understands what it's like to be ridiculed, um, to be made fun of, to be an outcast. And he was with me. And so you want to ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you have to say in your prayers, in your writing, with a friend? Um, In this process, you can ask, if you've made a commitment, Jesus, can I renounce this commitment? Can I let this commitment go? Can I declare this commitment to actually be something that's honoring the devil and be rid of it and let it go? And then the fourth question is, what is your faith committed to? What is your faith committed to? And this is a chance for you, not only, Jesus, what do you have to say, and you'll get gospel truth from that, but then what is your faith committed to? What is Jesus inviting you to replace with that commitment, a more powerful commitment to him, a more powerful commitment to his word, a more powerful commitment to the reality that God is actively at work in your life and he wants to bring healing through the things of your past. And so, and then let me, as I've been doing each week, I'm gonna give you some psalms that you can see scripture writers who are wrestling with these things. So Psalms for when life is up, down, or sideways. Psalm 24, Psalm 51, and Psalm 109 are great psalms to see some of the scripture writers wrestling with some of these things. Um, I'm gonna close by leading us in a prayer, renouncing a potential vow, maybe a commitment that you've made in your life. And so... I'm going to pray in a way, I'm going to invite you to pray along with me, okay? And so we're going to pray, and we are going to take a commitment or a vow um, that we've made, and we're going to renounce it. We're going to invite God's presence in, and we're we're going to renounce that and ask Jesus to set us free. And so this is an example of one of the ways that you can apply this this week. If you're not a Christian, you can use this. Um, the commitment that you've made to live apart from God maybe isn't a commitment that you've actually made, but maybe you're ready to take a step forward and to commit to Jesus. You can pray along with me as well. Let's pray together. So I'm going to pray and just say this in your heart if you want to, uh, if you want to make this. Uh, this and <laughs> so it would be helpful if you have a, a commitment that you've made that you want to let go of. And if you haven't, just ask the Lord to speak to you while we're praying this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and each of us, we want to bring commitments that we have made. We want to name those commitments. Um, Jesus, I have personally been committed to pleasing people and caring more about what they think than what you think. I've been more concerned about my own approval of others than your approval. Um, I've been committed to being selfish and to manipulating other people to get what I want. But I pray that you would use this time and put your spirit 
on commitments that we have made that are leading us into bondage with the devil. We are now recognizing, we're beginning to recognize the power that these commitments have had over us. We confess these to you as sin because in these things we've relied on ourselves rather than trusting in you or in the gospel. We ask now that you would forgive us and we receive your forgiveness. We also want to repent of these vows, these, these commitments that we've made. And so in your name, we hereby renounce these commitments. We declare them to be empty, null, and void of power from this day forward. We have come to believe lies that have held us in bondage, and we renounce those lies. In your name, we also command any spiritual forces of darkness, any manifestation of the devil to leave and never return. And Jesus, we further ask that you would send your spirit and in the place where these commitments were in our hearts, flood them with the love of your spirit, with his truth, so that we might walk in freedom. Do this so that we can bear up under our past and our present and walk with you into the future. We love you and praise you. Amen. Well, the rest of our service is an opportunity to respond. And if, if the Spirit of God started something in you, then use this next time. We're going to sing we're going to come to communion. We're going to receive an offering. Um, use this time to, to talk to God, to write something down. Um, you don't have to participate. If God's spirit is doing something, then, uh, then, then follow where he's leading. Um, we're going to receive an offering next. And so if you're going to be giving, um, then prepare your gifts. If you want to give online, you can do that. The instructions for doing that are on the slides. And I... Your gifts support the church. Your gifts help us to be a church that's setting people free. It's helping people to walk and experience God to the fullest. And so remember that as you give, whether you give now or you give online during the week. Um, and then also remember, if you have a connection card, please fill this out and you can drop it in the basket as it goes by.